So there's one big hallmark of all negotiation, especially in this job market in veterinary medicine. Everything is negotiable. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in Virginia. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist in California. We are absolutely thrilled to be hosting the 2022 Virtual Veterinary Financial Summit, October 22nd and 23rd. We have some amazing speakers lined up, and we have workshops, panels, and Q&As all about personal finance and practice finance, practice management. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com summit to learn more and register. Our guest today is Lance Rosa. He's a veterinarian and attorney, and he has worn many other hats, including practice owner, speaker, and educator. Lance, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks to be here. It's good to be with you both. So let's get started with something I really love to talk about, which is contracts. So is a contract appropriate in all employment situations? Well, so uh, everybody loves thinking about contracts. It's one of the things that all veterinary students can't wait to go to school for. Of course, I'm joking. It's something that most veterinary students and veterinarians have to be drugged to the classroom to talk about the legal aspects of their employment. But as far as is a contract appropriate in all employment situations, From an employee's perspective, I say yes. And so I have the opportunity to speak with a lot of veterinary students every year. And I teach that contract is the one of the only things that gets everything out on the table for you. It's one of the only things that allows you to have a good memory of. So we can have that piece of paper, that writing that we can go back to refer to. So the contract is actually quite beneficial for employees. Looking at it from the employer's perspective, Yes, there are some aspects of that contract that are also very important as well. But I would much rather see veterinarians put everything out on the table, all terms are known, versus a handshake agreement where things can pop up later, people's memories fade, and the terms can be changed down the road. Awesome. So you did mention something there that I want to point on, and it's I didn't think of this, is it's an agreement. So do you have a time frame as to when should you be reviewing or revising your agreement with your employer? Yes, it is an agreement and it should be an agreement that should be revisited regularly. So as a veterinary employer, I prefer to revisit the agreement, the contract, at least on a yearly basis. When I'm representing and working with clients or veterinarians, employees, I recommend that they revisit their contract on a yearly basis. 99% of all contracts that I see in veterinary medicine are for one year. And so occasionally I'll see a contract that's longer, that's three years, two years, but I'd much prefer that everybody is reviewed regularly on one year. Well, there's contracts that don't even have a time frame in them. We can definitely start talking about some hidden secrets and some traps that I refer to. Actually, sometimes when I'm teaching, I'll refer to these as red flag warnings. And so a contract that has an indefinite term or says that it's going to be forever, that's a problem. The kind of the workaround in the negotiation process, you know, on that eternal contract, if you will, is a regular performance review. So it's one thing that we'll often have inserted into the contract that the associate, the veterinarian, will be subject to an annual review. And hopefully things are going well with the employment. And that's the perfect time to say, hey, things are going well. Clients are happy. Patients are happy. The team is happy. Now it's time to start talking about a raise. Mm -hmm. And that's the fear is if you don't get an annual review, if you don't review your contract, 
you're stuck in pre-inflationary compensation. And I'm sure you've talked a lot about inflation here lately, and that's something that's hitting everyone, including veterinarians. We might have a few blogs talking about inflation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Certainly, inflation hits you harder if you're a veterinarian who's being paid as a salary employee versus if you're on pro-sal, depending on how you look at it and depending on where the economy is. And so we get a lot of questions about pro-sal. How would you define pro-sal concisely to a new graduate veterinarian? Sure. So you actually bring up a really good point here. And so pro-sal is a term that was coined by Mark Opperman, a practice manager. Quite a few years ago, Mark wrote a book, actually a series of books about compensating veterinary associates on a pro-sal model. When I'm reviewing contracts, only a very few small percentage of those contracts are actually the true pro-sal as defined by Mark Opperman. We're talking one or 2%. The vast majority of contracts are actually this base or production model. Now, I think pro-sal has a very ubiquitous term in the veterinary profession because it's easier to write. It's easier to say it has less syllables than base or production. That's quite a, a mouthful. So when I'm explaining compensation models to associates, I think of three. I think of the base or production compensation model, which the definition is, and we kind of go back to the legal writing on that, the veterinarian shall be compensated or paid the greater of base salary, a number, a salary, 100,000, 120, whatever you want to put in there, or the big word, or, and then the production percentage. So base or production. Pro-sal, the smaller percentage, is defined by two checks, two checks given throughout the month. So one check is a forward of the production that that veterinarian is expected to receive. And the second check per month is the actual production amount that they receive. I think that we'll talk more about the advantages and disadvantages of pro-sal, but that is one of the inherent disadvantages there is that second check may not be very big. And the third way that a veterinarian can be paid, small animal veterinarian, uh, would be straight salary, which is pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, absolutely. And so any pitfalls to watch for with that base salary plus production? Yeah, the one part of that compensation package that can really receive some negative press is the negative accrual provisions. And so if a veterinarian is paid on a base or production model or even a pro-sal model, Mark Opperman's model, if there's negative accrual in that language, in that contractual language, that's a big problem. It's a big problem for recent graduates. It's a big problem for practicing associates as well. So that's one of the first things that I look for in a production-based compensation package. And it's one of the first things that I ask to be removed as well. Other pitfalls or disadvantages, if you will, is the devil is really in the details on what is included in production and what is excluded from production. So you can't just compare apples to apples and say, well, this contract is 25%, this contract is 22%, therefore 25 must be better. Well, if the 25 excludes a lot of things like your regular preventatives, laboratory work, things along those lines, then that can get very painful for the associate veterinarian. So I'd rather see a contract that has an all-inclusive production provision instead of a lot of stuff that is excluded. What's the standard for clinics to calculate the production? Because it's also in the air as far as monthly, quarterly, every, you know, once a year, every twice a year, something like that. This definitely falls into the devil's in the details category. So I see everything from calculating production from a monthly basis out to calculating production on a yearly basis. For the associate, the smaller the time frame is usually better. 
for a couple of reasons. And, and this goes back to the time value of money, which I know you talk extensively on as well. If I perform a service as an associate veterinarian in January, and I've got to wait until the following February to get paid for that service, the practice is spending my money. I can take that money. I can invest it. I can use it to pay down debt. I want my money now versus a year from now. But also too, the longer the time frame, then we start to get into the law of averages essentially. So the high months are averaged in with the low months. And typically speaking, those low months when averaged in will offset that compensation downward. So I'd rather be paid for the production that I do immediately. So if January, July is a good month, I get paid the following month and it's not averaged in with lower months as well. So as far as the standard, what you ask, the standard is definitely in the monthly to quarterly. Now we'll talk a little bit about corporate practices. Corporate practices love to pay production compensation on a quarterly basis. That's how they run their numbers. That's how they think about their business. They think that the month has too many ups and downs. Most private practices that I see do tend to pay on the monthly schedule. Okay. So going back to negative accrual, there are a couple of misconceptions that I see out there about negative accrual. And so I wanted to see if we could pick your brain about those things a little bit. So first I'll ask what might be an easy question. Is there any advantage to ever being on negative accrual? Well, the only advantage that I can think of is if the production percentage is incredibly high and the veterinarian is very sure that they can meet their production threshold on a month in and month out basis. And that would usually be an experienced veterinarian that's in a very solid practice setting with a very solid and stable team around them. And then they may be able to use negative accrual to negotiate for a higher percentage. Because what negative accrual is doing is shifting some of the risk of a bad month from the practice, from the employer to the employee. So if you take on more risk as an individual, you should be compensated by higher benefit. It's when veterinarians take on that risk and then are not compensated with any sort of benefit, that's where the problem really lies. And so it would be a very narrow indication that I would actually ever say, yes, we should negotiate for negative accrual. And the dollars would really have to be there before I say yes. Okay. And then the other thing that I see commonly as an argument against negative accrual, but I don't actually see this in contracts and in practice very often, I think I've had one story of this happening, is there's a misconception out there that if you're on negative accrual and you have a bad month, you're going to actually owe the practice money and have to actually write them a check. Is that true? Oh, thank you for asking that. That's the most common misconception that I hear as well. In a true negative accrual setting, that is not the situation. So negative accrual just means that the negative balance, so if the veterinarian does not meet their production threshold, that negative balance is carried forward or accrued. But the words negative accrual do not mean that there's any sort of payment that goes from the veterinarian to the practice. To effectuate that, we would need a repayment provision. Very, very rarely do I see a negative accrual plus a repayment provision. And when a practice does that, and we're talking like one or 2% of the contracts that I see have the combination of both. And when a practice does that, really what they're doing is they're trying to pay on straight production, but they're hiding it through a series of legal maneuvers that goes from base or production to negative accrual through a repayment provision. So it's a multi-step process to actually get there. But the words negative accrual, again, just to clarify, do not mean that you're going to pay the practice anything if you don't meet your production threshold. Having said that, though, 
if you're regularly expecting that production check, that the production check is part of what you're basing your household expenses and your budgeting on, and you don't get that production check, and then it takes several months to get that production check back after you have a bad or a negative month, don't meet that production threshold. Negative accrual can be very damaging to your personal finances. And also negative accrual can be very damaging to your psyche to, you know, am I practicing well? Why can't I meet my production threshold? Why am I not receiving a production check? It can carry an emotional toll as well. And for those reasons, I really dislike negative accrual. Mm -hmm. We've already said it once. <laughs> We've got to talk about the corporates every now and then because there's a lot of employers out there that are quote unquote corporate employers. Corporate practices love negative accrual. They almost always lead with negative accrual when they present a contract to an associate. Yeah. And have you seen veterinarians have success in negotiating out a negative accrual in a corporate contract? Absolutely. So I have the very distinct opportunity to help hundreds of veterinarians negotiate their employment contracts every year. In fact, we see up to 500 contracts a year, and I've been doing this since 2016. So I get to see a lot of contracts and follow veterinarians through the negotiation process. There's definitely been a ramp up in the number of contracts that we see with negative accrual, probably 30 or 40% overall of the contracts that we see do have a negative accrual component in there. We ask to have that removed every single time and we're successful about 70% of the time. So many practices will remove negative accrual if they're asked about it. So one, the veterinarian has to understand what it means and then understand how to ask to have it removed. Now, if the negative accrual is not removed on the first pass, and so the practice comes back and says, no, we can't remove negative accrual. Then we kind of go through a one, two, three step process to limit the effects of negative accrual to the associate veterinarian down the road. And keep in mind, I work for the associate veterinarian the vast majority of the time. And so I'm really on the side of the employee, the associate veterinarian. But having said that, so the first thing that we'll do is ask for reset provisions in that a negative accrual. So if there's a large negative balance, particularly from a recent graduate, that first four to six months, they're not going to be highly productive. We want to have that negative balance reset to zero at the six month mark. We would prefer to have that negative balance reset at least once every six months at the very, very most once a year. And so we won't carry that negative balance for years and years and years down the road. Most practices will go for that negative reset provision. So the negative balance will be reset every six months, every year, whatever we end up negotiating for. The next step, if we can't have negative accrual removed completely, if we can't get the reset provision in, then the next step, the third step would be, is we limited its impact. And where negative accrual really impacts veterinary mental health and wellness is on vacation. So I can kind of understand as an employer that if a veterinarian is in the hospital and they're not productive, they're not meeting their production thresholds, you know, there's something wrong there, either with the practice or with the practitioner. But if they're not in the hospital, if they're on vacation trying to recharge their brain and recharge their body, they should not be thinking about, oh my gosh, I've got a big zero on my production and I'm not going to receive my production moving forward. So the third thing that we'll do is say negative accrual is not an effect on any PTO or CE days. And so if the veterinarian is out on vacation, out taking CE or out sick, that negative accrual that would have occurred during those days is no longer in effect. And so they have to be in the hospital to receive a negative balance. And that would be the only way that it affects them. So we try to lessen the effects of negative accrual on the financial health and also the mental and wellness health of the veterinarian. And we find that three-step process, there's usually a winner 
somewhere in that three-step process that the practice can say yes to. That's great. I love that three-step process because it gives you something that you can still put in there as provisions to help protect you as an associate, even if you can't get the negative accrual completely stricken. Yeah. And one thing that's really hard for veterinarians in the negotiation process is taking no. And so, you know, sometimes they'll hear the word no. Oh, I've already asked and that must be no. And so it takes a lot of coaching and a lot of encouragement to say, yes, you were told no once. Let's ask again. Let's ask again. Let's ask again. Because this can be very detrimental, you know, to them. So hearing no <laughs> for, for a lot of people is, well, I'm just going to ask. I'm just going to keep asking until I get a yes. Veterinarians are very bad at that. And so uh, if you do get that no on that initial ask, let's find another way to ask and ask until we get the answer that we want. Well, that was a great explanation of base plus production, salary. So any other pros and cons of salary versus pro-sal? So salary versus pro-sal or base or production, we can lump both of those into the same category right now. But I, I really like baser production and pro-sale compensation because it allows the veterinarian to not be underpaid. Salary has the distinct disadvantage of allowing an overproductive veterinarian to be underpaid. And that's been a big problem that through veterinary medicine, through eons at this point, is being underpaid as an associate. So I really like baser production and pro-sale because it doesn't necessarily cap the veterinarian's earning potential. If they want to see that extra case, they can see that extra case and earn the money for that extra case. It provides a safety net. Baser production provides a safety net. I can set my personal expenses. I can set my budget to that safety net. And then anything that I receive for production, I can use for savings. I can use for emergency fund. I can use to pay down debt. That's like icing on the cake. It's a bonus. It literally is a bonus. So having the combination of both of those is very important for me. So we don't have to work really hard in the negotiation process because we know that we're going to be paid to our actual productive ability. There's another big misconception that we need to talk about with base or production compensation or any production-based compensation for that matter. So whether it be pro-sal, straight production, or base or production models, there's a common misconception that veterinarians become overly competitive, that they steal cases from each other, and or they overcharge clients. They overcharge clients for blood work or for diagnostics that aren't necessarily needed. I've been doing this for a long time. I visited with literally thousands of veterinarians about their compensation, with hundreds of practice owners about their compensation models. And I can think of one or two examples of veterinarians truly acting badly, that are truly stealing cases from each other to earn more production, or truly marking things up or overly charging clients. It's very rare that veterinarians actually engage in that type of behavior. So a lot of practice owners, a lot of people in the field will say, we shouldn't pay on production because it encourages these behaviors. Maybe it does in car salespeople or insurance salespeople, but that is not the type of people that we're dealing with with veterinarians. And so I'm a strong proponent of a production compensation model because it allows veterinarians to be compensated appropriately. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the more common misconceptions out there. So what are some common mistakes that you see in contracts, both from the employee perspective and then also from the employer perspective? Um, well, I wish that contracts were uh, a little bit more uniform in the veterinary profession, but I see contracts that are literally written on scratch pieces of paper 
you know, all the way up to 35 page beast of contracts. And so, you know, first common mistake is I, I think that there's a sweet spot. It takes at least five, six, seven pages to write an appropriate contract that has all the legal protections that will protect both parties in there. So we can see contracts that are too short. If a contract gets, you know, 12, 15 pages of dense legalese that it takes a lawyer or a law degree to understand what it's saying, that's a problem. A contract should be written in a way where everyone that's a party can understand it, that it's not ambiguous, it's not vague, and we can pull it out and we can understand it at any point in time without having to pay a lawyer, you know, to read our own contract to us. And so too long is also a problem as well. One of the biggest issues that I see, and I actually won't let clients sign a contract that is not an at-will contract. And so I see more and more contracts that are proclaiming to be not at-will. And this has to do with the employment market. Practices are desperate for associates. And when they do get an associate that they can hire, they want to lock them into a long-term contract. Well, a term contract is almost inherently a bad thing for associates unless there's a lot of compensation to go along with it. I call this the football coach's contract. Yes, you can lock me into a long contract, but you're going to pay me a lot of money, as in millions of dollars, because you really are giving up a lot of your rights and, and a lot of your potential down the road if you lock into a contract. A lot of associates and even employers don't know that a term contract even is a thing and, and at-will employment is a thing. So we want to see at-will language in that contract. The second thing that I see is, is long notice periods. And so both from the associate's perspective and the employer's perspective, I'm seeing longer and longer notice periods. If you do need to resign or leave the practice, the old general rule was, is you would give two weeks, sometimes a month, 30 days at most. Then that crept up to 60 days as far as standard. Now I'm seeing a lot of 90, 120, and even 180 day notice periods. If you're an associate and you don't want to work at that practice anymore, that things have gotten so bad that it's time to leave, or you've got another job offer that's better, and you've got to wait 180 days before you can leave the practice and start your new job, that is an incredible amount of time. It's an eternity. From the employer's perspective, why would you want an employee working in your practice that does not want to be there, that's not happy, that's not providing good service to the clients, that really is just, you know, quite honestly needs to leave? And so I think those lock-in provisions are bad, both for the associate and the practice and the employer. So I really would like to see a more free job market in terms of those notice periods. Those are the two biggest mistakes that I see is, is trying to lock someone into a contract or accepting a contract where you're locked in. Okay. So we went over that period of time for your resignation. What about non-competes? What are your thoughts about non-competes? <laughs> and is there a place for non-competes in the currently hot job market that we have? Well, so you, you probably heard me take a big deep sigh there <laughs> because, you know, when people think about contracts, they think about non-competes. And veterinary non-competes are probably one of the, you know, most onerous sets of provisions that are out there. Just as a fun fact, I wrote my law paper uh, thesis on non-competes in veterinary medicine. So I've been living and breathing non-competes for a, a number of years at this point. This is a, an active area of debate throughout the legal community and an active area of debate throughout the veterinary community. Yes, we are in a white hop job market and employees can almost dictate whatever they want. Again, I represent a lot of employees and I get to see a lot of employees through their negotiation process. 
Having said that, it is very rare that I will see an employer that allows the non-compete to be removed completely. And we ask almost every single time. Employers still demand those non-competes. And so I don't see non-compete agreements going away in veterinary medicine because they still are very important to the practice. 99% of all contracts that I see, written contracts that I see, have a non-compete in them. Even some in states where non-competes aren't enforceable, there's five states where a non-compete won't be enforced, but I still see them. I still see them in there. So as an associate, you can almost expect to see a non-compete in a written contract when it's presented to you. There's a couple of reasons why practices are very reluctant to remove the non-compete altogether, and it has to do mostly with their financing and their funding. So private practice owners, the value of their practice, this very valuable asset, oftentimes is dictated by the goodwill and the ability to retain veterinarians or at least exclude veterinarians from practicing in that area. A lot of the corporate practices that have private equity money, they have contingent strings on their money that actually requires non-compete agreements as well. So I get these responses when I ask to have non-competes removed from contracts. They say, we hear you, but we can't. We literally, we would lose our funding if we did this on a large scale. And so again, they're not going away because the money that fuels practices depend on those non-competes. So as an associate, we've got to start thinking about what are ways that we can work within that non-compete agreement and make it work for us. And so what we teach and what we do in real life is we talk about there are three things that we can limit the impact of that non-compete on us down the road. There's three points that we can negotiate. And the first thing is, is we can negotiate the air mile radius. And so if the air mile radius that's presented is 15 miles, then we really need to be looking at Google Maps and right-click and measure the distance from practice A to competitive practices and say, okay, there's a really good practice that's at 12 miles or 11.8 miles. Let's get that non-compete to say 11.5 miles. Let's get it to say 10 miles. So we want to reduce the air mile radius just to the smallest radius that we can possibly get to. The second thing that we can reduce is the time frame. So most non-competes are at least two years, three years, some are five years, which is quite onerous. Um, and I, I really don't agree with that whatsoever. So if a practice leads with three years, then let's get it to two years. If they lead with two years, then let's get it to one year. And so we actively negotiate these numbers these diametrically opposed interests in the non-compete to get the bad part down as low as we can. Another interesting little tool that we'll use for the time frame is if you work for a practice for six months and it's got a three-year non-compete on it, is that really fair? I, I don't think it is at all. So if you work for them for six months, then let's have a six-month non-compete. If you work for eight months, let's have an eight-month non-compete and then cap that thing at a year, or 18 months or two years. And so a graduated time frame is something that most practices can agree to. So again, we're playing back and forth. We're trying to get an agreement that makes both parties happy, both parties willing to do the deal. And then the last thing that really needs to be narrowed down in veterinary medicine is the scope of practice. So what activities are actually excluded? So if you're in a small animal practice, a small animal daytime practice, then we need to exclude things like shelter medicine. We need to exclude emergency medicine. We need to exclude small ruminant and equine. So you can go and practice and earn a living, albeit it's not in the same small animal day practice. The reverse is also true. If you're in emergency medicine, those clients really don't interact on the small animal daytime practice. And so if you're in emergency medicine, let's exclude only emergency practice. Let's allow you to go see daytime clients or work for a daytime practice. 
And this is a very important concept because most lawyers that write non-compete agreements don't understand that there's a difference between small ruminant medicine, small animal medicine, daytime practice and emergency practice and large animal practice. And so they just say the practice of veterinary medicine, which excludes the entire world of veterinary medicine. So just to kind of summarize, we want to negotiate the radius, we want to negotiate the time frame, and we want to use some creativity in negotiating that. And then also we want to negotiate the scope of practice in that non-compete. That was such a good explanation. One of the things, and you kind of narrow it down to whatever is a number, you can negotiate that because most employers will tell you, we can't take that statement off, but you can change a number pretty easily from two to one year or from a 10 mile to five mile radius. Um, so yeah, in negotiation training, that's called a diametrically opposed interest. So most numbers are diametrically opposed salary, days off, number of hours worked, non-compete radius number, you know, so if it's a number, it is negotiable. So there's one big hallmark of all negotiation, especially in this job market in veterinary medicine, everything is negotiable. So negotiate those numbers and get them to where you can live with them. Yeah. I never heard about the graduated time frame, and it sounds pretty mm -hmm. interesting. One comment I do have, and I'm not sure if you've seen this is with non-competes, they'll have the radius. And then I like to see an address associated with that radius because I see sometimes, oh, wherever we offer services, where if you are working for a corporate practice and they have plenty of practices within your city, does that count? Yeah, probably not enforceable. So I, I do see that quite a bit. Most of your big corporate practices, big group practices that have been doing this for a long time, I call it a blow up provision, which is what I had to make up internally because there is no law textbook on this sort of thing. So what it'll say is, is if a veterinarian goes to another location, another sister hospital and works for, and then we put a number, specified number of days in there, four days a week, 13 days a quarter, 250 days per year, there's some sort of what I call it the blow up, right? So once you cross that threshold, then the non-compete blows up or expands around that other location as well. That's the only way to really do that fairly. Because again, at the heart of a non-compete, we've got to be dealing with client interactions. If you go across the city and it's clients that you've never worked with, never met before, then you really can't do any harm to that practice. You have to be there and practicing and meeting the clients to do damage to the practice, to unfairly compete with the practice. And so these blow up or these expansion provisions are becoming much more common. But also too, keep in mind when we do this creative work and we actually, you know, put those numbers in there, then it creates something that's probably enforceable. So at the very end of all of this is where would a lawsuit fall? Would somebody be able to win a lawsuit if they were sued on these grounds? And back to your original point, if there was a practice with 150 locations in the state, a non-compete's not going to be enforceable against all of those locations and all of those radii. Well, going with enforceable, because you say that, but you're a lawyer. For me, everything is enforceable. I'm a vet, so I'm just worried about my legalities and all this. Any horror stories that you have from non-competes? Unfortunately, I have <laughs> horror stories every week. And so you know, I really do two things in my job, and that is you know, help veterinarians get into contracts and then help veterinarians get out of contracts. And I call the non-compete, and this is literally what I teach and what I tell clients, I call it the decade wrecking provision. So a veterinarian gets entrapped in a non-compete and they only have the choice to either, you know, move and sell their home, lose the equity in that home. Their spouse has to get a new job. Their kids have to find new schools. 
this is a very painful process, or they have to commute for an hour, hour and a half, you know, to this new job, or they have to lay out of the job force and do something else. These are all financially wrecking things for the veterinarian. And so the non-compete can really cause a lot of problems. It's almost as bad as like a medical injury or something like that, but you can buy insurance for other big problems like that. So having said all of that, the non-compete should be entered into and only with eyes wide open, what damage could be done to me, what damage could be done to my future self. Unfortunately, most veterinarians go into a relationship thinking this is going to be great. This is an awesome job. And they don't foresee all of the things that could happen. The toxic workplace, the practice sells, it moves over to corporate, the workforce turns over and it's not the same people that you're working with or working for earlier. So we have to really look at a non-compete in a way that we're trying to predict the future. But at the end of the day, I'm always thinking, all right, this relationship's probably going to fall apart. I have to say it. <laughs> and you know, what's our exit strategy? What's our way out of this situation? Yeah, absolutely. And so certainly the big part of working with contracts is negotiation. And so what are your top negotiation tips? So the negotiation really should be based around a relationship-based negotiation. So I don't even like the word negotiation. Negotiation puts a negative connotation in most people's minds. If you say, I'm going to negotiate with you, well, that means you're going to give something up for me to get me to say yes. And so one of the biggest tips that I see or what I would say is, is let's remove the word negotiate from our vocabulary completely. Getting started is the hardest part. And so instead of asking, can we negotiate? Is this offer negotiable? I need these other things. I would say something like, can we meet and discuss the offer? There's some ideas that I'd like to throw at you. And so we want that other party to come to the table in a proactive and an optimistic state of mind, not a negative state of mind. Okay, this person's going to ask for a bunch of other stuff. The second big tip that I have is we really want to focus on the relationship and the shared and complementary interests around the relationship. So if the practice is looking to grow and grow clients, if the practice is looking to expand customer service offerings or do a great job with clients, if the practice is looking to provide best medicine, those are the things that we should be talking about first. From the associate's perspective, talk about, you know, I love offering that next level of diagnostics. I love working with clients. I love making sure that cases are worked up completely. These are the things that practice owners want to hear. So we start to share and align our interests instead of opening with something, as we talked about earlier, diametrically opposed, that's controversial. You don't want the first thing out of your mouth is, I need more money. Well, the practice is going to say, well, what's in it for me? And so we got to talk about all of the good things. <laughs> Let's kind of change gears here and talk about, I don't know if you've bought a used car, a new car here lately, but if you go to a car dealer and you ask, hey, what's the price on this vehicle? They say, hey, did you look at this one? It's got alloy wheels. It's got leather tires. Did you see how nice the radio is? They talk about all the good things and then they say the price. That's kind of the shared and complementary interest approach. You don't open with the price. You should talk about all the good things that are going to occur first. So focus on those shared and complementary interests would be advice number two. The third point of advice is to do your research. And so veterinarians and people that manage veterinary practices are creatures of science and data. And so we want to avoid statements like, I feel like I deserve $120,000 or I want those don't do anything to the practice at all. That's, that's, that's not, that doesn't move them at all. And even moreover, 
saying my expenses or my budget says that I should earn this. That's completely irrelevant to the practice. My student loan debt is this. This is what I need to make my payments. Does not affect the practice whatsoever. We've got to talk about things that affect the practice. And when we're handling these diametrically opposed interests like salary, in my mind, there's really two ways to handle them. And this is what I call the market-based approach or the production-based approach. And so it's kind of like buying a house, right? And so if you go to buy a house, the real estate appraisal or the real estate agent will say, you know, other house over here sold for X amount. This house over here sold for Y amount. If we look at houses in the neighborhood, this is about what this house will sell for. That's exactly what we want to do in a market-based approach is say, well, the veterinarians in this part of the world are earning this. Equine veterinarians as a whole are earning that. Therefore, a fair salary would be why. And so using data, where we get that data from is the Department of Labor. Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes average salary data for veterinarians. I can send you the links for this to put in the podcast notes. The problem with that data is it lumps together researchers and emergency clinicians and day practitioners, but at least gives you some good averages down to the zip code area. So you can really kind of understand where the geographics come into play. The other good source of data that we use is the AVMA Senior Survey. And so that gives us what seniors coming out of the 30 various veterinary schools are signing contracts for. The problem with that data is it's not necessarily geographically driven. And secondly, it only pertains to first-year associates. But those first-year associates tend to set the salaries for other associates. So one of the worst things that I see is, is an associate that's been out for five, six, seven, eight years, and they're earning less than a first-year associate because they haven't done the research. So that older associate can go and say, look, seniors coming out of the local veterinary college on average are earning X. I have six years of experience, therefore I should earn Y. And so that hard data is what speaks to employers and practice owners and corporate practices for that matter, not the I feels I wants. And so those are the three things that I really lean on is lean on data. When you're in the negotiation, focus on those shared and complementary interests and focus on the relationship. Excellent advice. I'm a researcher myself, so I love that advice. And again, like you mentioned, there's resources. One additional one, it's mostly for relief veterinarians, but still you can look at it and have an idea. So we actually interviewed Cindy Trice recently uh, from Relief Rover, and they just posted a kind of per hourly salary survey per state. So like you mentioned, unfortunately, the AVMA, it has a calculator that you can put your state. But again, I live in California. I could live in the middle of nowhere, California. I could live near L.A., So that is a very different cost of living. So certainly salaries will vary. Yeah. And I mean, you notice that I actually didn't say the AVMA salary calculator. I find it to be that far off that (laughs) I actually don't even recommend it as a resource. I prefer the senior survey data and the Bureau of Labor Statistics quite a bit more. So with that said, you know, any tips for new grads uh, when they're negotiating or discussing whatever word you want to use when they are working (laughs) on their first contract? Yeah. So the things that I can say is number one, take this seriously. When veterinarians negotiate or discuss or however we want to say the word, if we want to remove that from our vocabulary, take it seriously because we're talking $20,000, $30,000 swings. And you both know when it comes to disposable income at this point, this is savings. This is the stuff that is going to retirement accounts. This is your emergency fund. This is extremely important income. 
we can see big differences in people that actually do their research and negotiate versus not. So number one, you know, know your worth, do the research. And number two, just simply ask for it. And so veterinarians typically are so anti-adversarial that they don't want to even ask for it. But at that point, and this is where I really lean on some of the work of Sheryl Sandberg and other writings like Harvard Business Review's Negotiation Center, they really spend a lot of time talking about building yourself up and being able to ask for that. And I think that one of the tips that I picked up is to use a proxy. And this actually comes from negotiation strategy for women, but it also works really well for men as well, is don't necessarily think about yourself. You know, women and men, veterinarians for that matter, typically do a bad job of putting themselves first. Think about your spouse, think about your kids, think about your future kids, think about your pets, think about your grandparents, your parents. They're the ones that help you get into veterinary school. And they're the ones that are going to depend on that extra income. They want you to be able to go visit them when they're sick. They may need you to help buy long-term care insurance. They are the ones that will benefit from that little bit of extra income. So put them in your shoes. Think to yourself, I've got to go ask for this extra twenty dollars or $30,000 because my parents are depending on it, because my kids or my future kids are depending on it. So use that proxy and that helps build the strength to actually go and ask those tough questions. And then if you get no, ask again, like we discussed earlier. The job market is so hot in veterinary medicine right now. It is very rare that I see a veterinarian's offer get turned down. In fact, in all the experience that I've had, I've only had one offer get pulled from a veterinarian that tried to negotiate. And so what I mean is, is the veterinarian asked for more money and they said, no, we're, we're going to rescind the offer. One time in thousands of negotiations. And so the worst, the fear, everyone's fear of, you know, hey, I'm going to lose my job if I ask for more money. It's really an unfounded fear. It's not a real fear in veterinary medicine. At the very least, you can still take the job for what they've originally offered it to you for. All right. That's really good advice. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> because... speech I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing that people are most afraid of. And I've heard more stories when it's some other type of work, like non-clinical work that happening. But for clinical work, yeah, especially in this job market, it's got to be unheard of. It's virtually unheard of. And that one veterinarian that that happened to, she called and said, they pulled the job from me. And I said, I'm very sorry to hear that. But you just did yourself a major favor. That's not a practice that you want to go to work for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so you talked about this a little bit earlier, talking about those associates who have been out for five or six years, and then they find out that the new grad is making more than them. And so we are starting to see these questions a lot from associates who have been out for a few years. And so what tips would you have for associates who want better terms for their next contract? Sure. So either with the practice or with the new practice. And so this really goes back to the same two topics that we talked about earlier, but we're going to put more emphasis on the production side of things. And so that practitioner that's been out for three, four, five, six years, they really should continue to get a feel for the job market out there. So that means check out ads, talk to their classmates, you know, look up the resources, what are other veterinarians earning in this area? So they constantly are aware of what a fair compensation package would be. So kind of keep that always out there on your feelers that, you know, what is a fair compensation package? Again, speaking to the market-based approach, but for a practitioner that is actively practicing, i.e. not a student or a recent graduate, the more important number is actually their production numbers. And so 
constantly being in tune with, hey, this is what I'm producing, even if you're not paid on a production-based compensation package, knowing that, hey, this is what my production is, will help you. So when you do go to ask for more money or more compensation, even on a salary, the first thing that almost every employer is going to do is pull the production numbers and say, wow, you were massively overproducing. Yes, we can give you a raise. Or, hey, you weren't even meeting your production numbers. We weren't able to pay you or justify your compensation as it is. Well, it's kind of a moot point at that point. So as long as the associate knows their production numbers going into the conversation, then they can really drive that conversation. And they can say, you know, look, I produced $700,000 last year and I was only paid $100,000. I was massively underpaid when compared to other veterinarians and industry standards. And by the way, industry standards would be somewhere between 18 and 25% of all the production that you make. 25% being on the total compensation side of things. So with all your benefits, pay time off, all of that stuff included in there. So kind of a more narrowed or tailored in number would be somewhere between 18 and 22%. Let's just use 20% for rough numbers for easy math. So, you know, a veterinarian that's producing $500,000 should easily be earning $100,000 in salary compensation. So knowing your numbers makes it very important when you do go in to have that annual review or go in to ask for more money. So preparing those numbers ahead of time, hey, other veterinarians in this area are earning 120. I produced 600,000. Whether we come at it from the market-based approach or the production-based approach, a more fair salary for me would be 120,000. And that's the data that really speaks to a veterinarian that's running a practice or a practice manager. Other things that I can say is, is maintain your emotional intelligence throughout the entire year. And so when clients are happy, when team members are happy, when patient interactions are going well, then it's a no-brainer for a practice to give you more money when you ask for it because they know it's going to cost a lot more to hire someone else. And so, you know, you don't want to hold them hostage or, you know, do the old ultimatum thing where, hey, if you don't pay me more, I'm going to leave. It's kind of inherent if you say, I've been looking at some other opportunities. I've been looking what I'm producing. I think that a fair salary would be X. If you have that conversation almost every single time, an employer is going to say, I get it. I understand. We're going to you know, give you a raise. But there's one very important point before I get off this subject with is it is up to you to ask. It's up to the associate. No employer is ever going to come to an associate and say, you know, I've been laying in bed thinking at night that I just, I underpaid my associates tremendously. And I just feel like I should give you an extra $20,000. No employer is going to do that. The associate has to come ask for that extra money and they need to do it in a way where it's, it's respectful, but it's also clear and concise. Yep. I, I'm getting excited, but we're running out of time because I'm like, we didn't even touch the whole sign-on bonuses or retention bonuses discussion. <laughs> well, sounds like sounds like we need to do another another show then. We'll meet, up, we'll meet again. <laughs> you know, that said, I'm sure people have a lot of questions. So what is the best way for our audience to get in touch with you? Sure. Thanks. Uh, actually, I spend my days over on the VIN boards in the folder that's called Regulatory and Legal. And so it's one of the only places on VIN where you can post anonymously. So I answer a lot of questions that are anonymous questions. I review contracts or provisions of contracts. We talk a lot about compensation. We have very detailed and in-depth conversations about non-competes, whether they're fair, whether they're enforceable. 
And so there's a couple of attorneys, myself and one other that weigh in on those legal boards. And so you get some professional advice, but also the Venn community at large weighs in on whether something is fair, reasonable, just, et cetera. So the best way to get a hold of me is send me a message over on the Venn boards and we'll respond back. Awesome. All right. Sounds great. And now we've come to our last question, Lance. What is your best advice for our listeners? Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a really uh, broad topic. And so my best advice would be to pay attention to these things. And so pay attention to your personal finances, pay attention to your budget, pay attention to what you're compensated. You know, and so we often talk about debt management and how do we reduce expenses. But my estimation, the easiest way to have more money at the end of the month is to make more money. And so, you know, there's the debt and the income side of things that I tend to spend more time on helping veterinarians, you know, make more income. So when you're paying attention to, you know, what's left over at the end of the month, let's pay attention to how much money we're making. And that's a very important component. And the last thing, you know, as I said earlier, everything is negotiable, especially in this job market. I'm going to repeat that because I love that. So everything is negotiable. Thank you, Lance, so much for this great conversation. And I hope you do get some messages because we get questions about contracts on a daily basis. Send them over. I love to answer them. And I love to help veterinarians. That's what I'm over there for. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Excellent, Lance. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to see you both. If you'd like to learn more about contracts, we have two panel discussions coming up at the Virtual Veterinary Financial Summit, which is October 22nd and 23rd of 2022. We have a panel on contracts called Let's Make a Deal. And we also have a panel on compensation and benefits called Show Me the Money. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com summit to sign up. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.